0: The country is now split as never before North versus South Young versus Old The haves versus the have-not
1: This country is more divided than ever I've never seen this country divided like this This is astounding to me
0: It's when tribalism gets really entrenched That things can get very
1: dangerous The idea that our present moment Is uniquely polarising Often goes unquestioned Phrases like we've never been more divided, have become cliches. But of course, history is littered with civil wars and tribal behavior. And some people say this is just an indelible part of human nature.
0: It's so clear to me, studying moral psychology, that we evolved to do tribalism.
1: But if that kind of tribalism really is programmed into us, what has history taught us about how to overcome it? Should our leaders appeal to reason, rationality or to patriotism and national unity. Should they appeal to our common humanity or try to unite us against a common enemy? It's just not very effective
0: to talk about a global identity. You know, until we're attacked by Martians, I think that's not (laughs) going to work so well.
2: You're listening to Polarised from the RSA. It's presented by Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor. We're not here to orchestrate an argument between warring tribes with opposing views that's Plenty of places you can hear that. Instead, we're trying to understand the big divides in our culture and our politics and what can be done about them. In this episode, we're talking about the idea of tribalism. Coming up, I'll be speaking to one of the leading experts on the psychology of tribalism and political polarization, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. But before we get into that. Uh, let's start with our usual segment, where we we set out what we've been thinking about in the last few days. We call it full disclosure. So, uh, Ian, what's at the front of your mind?
1: Well, I, I think this is a really interesting area, and obviously, it's it's very pertinent to to the whole theme of our series. But, but my starting point is that the UK is not as tribalized in in the the, the sense that this this term is usually used as the u s and that actually a lot of the debates that some people have about tribalizational politics in the u k are unduly influenced by what's going on in the u s There's a kind of false read across from from that country. And I've been thinking about this recently. I wrote about it in my in my newsletter, The Ruffian, which um, is of course excellent. Is in in all good email inboxes now, where I just sort of put together a, a few facts and statistics about the the UK economy versus the US economy, because it struck me that we talk about the UK th- through the prism of the US in more ways than one, and we're much closer to a European social democracy than we are to. Uh, a version of America. Uh, and somehow that gets lost. Uh, a sort of secondary way, another way I talked about it uh, in the newsletter is that we talk about the mental health crisis here. Our mental health crisis is nothing like it is in, in the US, um, where, for instance, you know, suicides have been steeply increasing over the last few years. Uh, and the trend for suicides in the UK is is in long term decline. So I'm struck by how, how our debate. Uh, economic and social debates are influenced by the US. And I think tribalisation is is part of that. We're certainly not polarised along party lines in the same way. And in fact, in a way, we have almost the opposite problem, is, which is that our parties don't seem to represent any kind of coherent um, parts of the
2: electorate. I guess you can also say that's probably true in relation to the issue of, kind of race and ethnicity, where, of course, there are tensions in Britain and there's racism in Britain, but it isn't. The kind of profound fault line... We have very uh, different histories. ...that is in America. Yeah. Uh, But I think one thing, and perhaps we'll talk about this later, uh, that does seem to me to be a common characteristic, which we don't talk about quite enough, is the kind of geographical element of polarisation, the kind of urban centres versus the periphery. Now, that's part of the American, what's going on in America. It's part of what's going on here. And I've been reading, it's a big part also of what's going on in France and that helps to explain the riots we're seeing. So let's turn to that. Uh, later on, but your 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 kind of question, which is, uh, are we a bit obsessed by America? Do we tend too much to understand British issues through the lens of assuming that we are we're like America? That's a an interesting question to bear in mind as we listen to the conversation uh, I had a few days ago with Jonathan Haidt uh, in New York, uh, where he's professor of ethical leadership. Uh, at New York University. Uh, He is, as I've said, one of our leading thinkers on the psychology of tribalism and political polarisation. I've followed Jonathan's work for many years. Um, His book, The Happiness Hypothesis, that I read a decade ago, turned me on to the whole kind of area of social psychology and behavioural economics. And uh, I remember coming back to the RSA and saying, we must have lots of events to discuss this stuff. And and, and we did for many years. We kind of became a centre of that kind of discussion. And then his. Uh, other book, the righteous mind, is a really important corrective to the idea that politics is all about appealing to people's kind of self-interest or to uh, to reason. His most recent book is the coddling of the American mind, and I, I suspect that's possibly the least relevant going on with your argument, the least relevant of his books to the British experience. But see what you think. Hi, this is John Haidt. Who is this? Hi, Jonathan. It's Matthew, Matthew Taylor. Matthew, hello again. How are you? I started Fine, by asking so Jonathan, time about just it. how serious are our problems today? Can we start by talking about this issue of polarisation? So we hear a lot of talk about it. Sometimes I talk about the three Ps that stalk the modern world. Pessimism, people seem to be worried about the future. Populism, which seems to be the most Popular form of politics right now, and also polarization people being increasingly divided on a whole set of issues and and more viscerally divided so do you do you see polarization? Do you think it is a real phenomenon? Yes,
0: um, I think it's a very real phenomenon in the United States. there's been a long running debate as to whether it's really happening, but that's a kind of a technical dispute about attitude polarization. As a social psychologist, I keep my eye on affective polarization. That is, how much do you hate the other side? And that, there is no doubt, it is increasing. So surveys in the United States, going back to the 1960s, show that we used to slightly dislike the other party and the people in it. But beginning in the 80s, it begins rising. And especially in the 2000s, it rises very quickly, to the point where now members of one party in my country hate the other side so much that many find it deeply offensive even to work in the same office as someone who voted the other way. Uh, So I think there's no doubt that if you keep your eye on hostility or hatred, it is rising.
2: Now, in the kind of areas that I work in, one of the most prized things is to be able to distinguish a cycle from a trend. So, you think this is a trend, not a cycle? Yes. And I read the other day someone saying that, that the midterm elections might suggest that we'd pass the high watermark of polarisation because certain groups you've seen quite hostile to Democrats in rural areas, for example, seem to be less partisan than they'd been before. But you're sure that whilst there may be cycles within the trend, the underlying trend of polarisation continues?
0: Well, as a social scientist, I'm very afraid to sign on to any statement that begins, you're sure of that. <laughs> but what I can say uh, is that I teamed up with a political scientist, Sam Abrams, in 2014, when it seemed like American democracy was, was hopelessly and dysfunctionally polarized. And we wrote an article in the Washington Post um, titled, The Top 10 Reasons American Politics Are So Broken. And we went through 10, there are even more than that, but we went through 10 um, most of them are not reversible. Uh, now, of course, things are going to happen that we can't possibly predict. So it's it's always dangerous to make predictions about the future. But let me just I'll just list a few of them, and let's decide whether we think that they are um, are reversible. Uh, So one that is reversible is changes in the U.S. Congress in the 1990s uh, when the Republicans took over. They made some changes that uh, damaged relationships among congressmen. They shortened the work week so that congressmen no longer moved to Washington. They could live at home and just fly in for work on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So uh, that's a change that is important and is reversible. But let's look at some others. Residential homogeneity, if you simply don't live near uh, people uh, who have a different lifestyle than you, um, it, it, you know, it's hard to see how that one's going to reverse. Um, all of that is related to our party polarization and the mass sorting of people with one temperament into, into one party and people with another temperament or personality into the other. Um, I suppose that could reverse if there's a major realignment, like one of the parties cracks up. Um, so in the long run, that could change. Um, others include uh, the end of the Cold War, the end of having a, for, a, a foreign enemy. Well, I suppose that one could change too, although uh, <laughs> we are so polarized in my country that if we were attacked by, by another country, I honestly think now it, it would divide us. Uh, we would actually blame the other side for the attack.
2: So you're talking about political polarization here, but also part of this is also identity, So to what extent is this polarization also connected to issues around identity, do you think?
0: Yes. So as countries get richer and as people get more educated, they care a lot more about symbolic political issues. This is one of those trends that is not going to reverse. It's a good thing that people get more educated, uh, but then they care more about these issues that are not necessarily about their pocketbooks about money um, obviously the UK situation is, is unique in that your polarization is much more about Brexit. Uh, I think I was just over in the UK for a week and I was kind of envious on, uh, how, uh, your, your, your divisions your, certainly your left and right division is much more scrambled than ours. Ours is very neat. Um, people on one side, they, they really line up neatly on almost all the attitude items. There are multiple cleavages that can happen. Um, I've been arguing that one of the big changes is the change from a 20th century left-right, which was over labor versus capital and, and all the old you know, communist socialist issues from 150 years ago. It's changing to what we might call the globalists versus the nationalists. And uh, those who lived through World War II are typically nationalists. They think that nation states are great. Certainly in Britain, you have every reason to think that Britain is great, especially if you lived through World War II. Um, And the young people who were raised after the Cold War often think, especially those in the university towns and in London, um, they think that nation states are bad things. They think they're arbitrary. They divide people. I I always just go back to the lyrics of John Lennon's song, Imagine, whenever I want to touch base with what the, the globalists believe. Imagine there are no countries, no religion, things like that. So, yes, uh, politics is ever-shifting, and uh, age and uh, globalism or cosmopolitanism is one of those dimensions.
2: Yes, so I'm David Goodhart. The author has referred to this as a distinction between the anywheres and the somewheres. Theresa May, our prime minister famously said, if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. So you can see these things playing out but one of the points that's been made about this shift from kind of class politics to demographic politics is that in a sense if you and I disagree about ideology or we disagree about money well we can have an argument about it but if we disagree because I'm young and cuz you're old well that's not something that can be negotiated that's just who we are so that's is that the link therefore between polarization and identity politics in the sense identity politics says the most important thing for your political stance is is you, the person you are, the tribe you belong to?
0: Well, I don't know about that. I think, um, so in in my book, in my recent book with Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind, um, we offer a different take on identity politics. Uh, We say there are two versions. There's one in which, the one which we call common humanity identity politics, where you draw a circle around the relevant community. Uh, You say we're all Americans or we're all British or... We're all human beings. And then within that circle, you might say, or some would say, some of our brothers and sisters are being denied justice or dignity. Um, so there's a more positive or loving approach. And this was certainly um, used by Martin Luther King in the United States and Nelson Mandela when he got out of prison. That's not a negotiation over zero-sum pie that's an attempt to say we have differences in our community and we do need politics, we need a political process to adjudicate them, but it can be done with the spirit of we're all in this together. What I think is is has arisen in the United States very clearly, and again, I was just in the UK, you got the exact same thing, is what you might call common enemy identity politics, which is based on the idea that there are several dimensions, uh, binary dimensions. Male is powerful and therefore bad, female is Oppressed and therefore good. Same thing for white versus non-white, uh, straight versus gay. So there's a kind of intersectional identity politics that I think, while I, I understand the I understand the idea behind it, the idea that in identities do interact, it's it's it is based on an important insight. But I think it, it breeds a kind of us versus them attitude within communities, within universities, within groups that does lead to intractable conflict where people see everything as a zero-sum game and you're fighting for slices of a fixed pie. So I think it's not the problem, it's not identity politics per se, it's the subtype or the or the flavor of identity politics.
2: So this is where I, I want to explore a link between the argue, that argument in your most recent book, The Coddling of the American Mind, with the previous book, The Righteous Mind, because it seems to me that What the Righteous Mind was encouraging liberals to understand was that certainly appeals to kind of universalism missed out the importance of things like tribal affiliation, uh, the sacred, uh, those kind of thicker kind of psychological and cultural bonds. So I kind of have to ask, isn't your hope that people will have this kind of inclusive notion of identity... Uh, Isn't that forlorn, given what you yourself has said about the fact that we kind of want to belong to tribes? And the thing about a tribe is, a tribe can only exist if there's another tribe that I'm not part of. Mm -hmm.
0: So tribalism is getting a lot of play these days, and there's a little, uh, there's a sort of mini backlash against tribalism industry, where where people point out that real tribes are not always at war. Real tribes are actually very good at exchange. They're very interested in in having good political ties with neighboring groups. So real tribes are not this parody of constantly warring closed groups, not at all. So uh, I think we have to understand that human nature gives us the ability both to put up walls and and, uh, um, organize our team to prepare to fight while at the same time, we're also very good at lowering those walls or lowering the drawbridges, I think you like to say in the UK, um, lowering the drawbridges and exchanging, uh, uh, trading, exploring. Um, so human nature is is both. It, this is not a question of overcoming human nature. Now, I happen to think that it, it's just not very effective to talk about a global identity um, you know, until we're attacked by Martians, I think that's not going to work so well.
2: <laughs> Although that would unite the American people, surely. Martians, surely the Martians would do it, Jonathan.
0: Yeah, unless some of our politicians denied uh, the existence of uh, <laughs> outer space or God knows what would happen these days. But uh, but you know my, my point is that if you look at if you look at the great civil rights leaders and especially you read the writings of Martin Luther King and Pauli e. Murray and many others, um, they used an explicitly Christian language that appealed to certain virtues and that was drawing a circle around. Uh, around around Americans. It it didn't exclude non-Christians, but it was a kind of a biblical language. And then they also used a very distinctively American language. They talked about the founding documents and American virtues. So there are ways that, you know, this is basic social psychology. If you and I have a disagreement and I come out and I say, you're wrong and here's why, I'm not going to get very far. But if I come out and I say, you know, we have a lot in common and, you know, you're, you're right to be concerned about this and that and you know, look at our shared history together. Well, just by starting off that way, I'm putting you on a different footing and now we can actually negotiate. So I do think that if you're going to talk about difference, you need to talk about commonality uh, first.
2: In terms of these phenomena that we've been talking about, pessimism, polarization, populism, what do you think are the most important things that we need to do to try to address this anger?
0: I think that, well. one of the most important things that we haven't mentioned is social media. And here, this is the reason why I'm especially alarmed about the future. You Imagine a society as having a set of centripetal forces pulling it inwards and holding it together and centrifugal forces blowing it outwards. And in the United States, at least, the, the centripetal forces were quite strong in the late 20th century. And one by one, um, they've all sort of come apart. Our media environment used to pull us in. We had three, just three networks. Now the media environment blows us out. But even more than that, imagine society as a network of individuals with a certain clumpiness. There are different groups and sub-networks. And then let's take the degree of connectivity and, and let's not increase it by 20% or 50%. Let's increase it by 5,000% so that anyone can make a death threat to anyone else. Anyone can can start a petition against anyone else. Let's let's connect up everybody. Oh, and at the same time, let's increase effective partisan polarization so that the two sides really really hate each other. This is our new world. This is why I think things are blowing up in such a similar way in so many countries. Social media has changed the basic uh, connectivity of the world. I think we have not fully come to terms with what this has done to us and with the degree to which this fosters distrust, paranoia, feeds conspiracy theories. So I think we're going to have to, I think we must figure out how to adapt, and that means that the media companies will have to become more responsible. I don't see why anyone can get a Facebook or Twitter account without proving their identity. I'm not saying you have to be public about it, but the companies need to verify that you are a human being and an identifiable human being. So if you make death threats, you know, there's, a way to, there's a way that you can be held accountable. Uh, we have to adapt to social media, and until we figure that out, I think we're going to have a lot of discontent, distrust, and
2: populist anger. In all this talk of polarisation, by coincidence, the other night I was watching Ken Burns' wonderful documentary about the Vietnam War, and he was looking at a year, 50 years ago, 1968, and actually, when you look at what happened in that year, the assassinations, the riots, the, the disaster of the Vietnam War, you think, actually, you know, it, how do, are we really polarised? I mean, it, it is a kind of irony here, you've written about the kind of fragility of the mind, is, is our feeling of polarisation itself a form of fragility? Because actually, 2018 and whatever its problems, it, it doesn't feel quite as crazy and dangerous as 1968 did. No, that's right. And that's very good to keep in perspective.
0: Things are much tamer now. And that's part of the long decline that Steve Pinker documents, the decline in violence. But I would put it this way. Back in 1968, this centripetal forces holding together the United States, at least, were extremely strong. The older generation had, had fought World War II together, they had a very strong sense of being, uh, a very strong sense of patriotism. The media environment was much more conducive. So I would say the centrifugal forces were stronger then than they are now, but the centripetal forces were so much stronger that on balance, there was just less chance that the country could split apart then than there is now.
2: What you're describing when we compare 2018 to 1968 is that, yes, the, the attacks on the body politic, the civic body, were greater, but actually our immune system was much stronger then. So the attacks may be less now, but we seem more fragile. Now, that, the reason I find that fascinating is that in an earlier edition of this program, Polarized, I suggested that we have this phrase in Britain, which is five a day, you know, five bits of fruit and veg a day. I said the civic, your civic five a day mm. should be having a close friend that you disagree with politically. And if you don't do that, then you should go out and find that person. Do you think we need a kind of a recipe for civic health?
0: Um, Yes, I do. But I think that I wouldn't just focus on one food group as you did. (laughs) So yes, that would be one element of it is, you know, find people who think differently and and get to know them. Um, I I, I personally think that the 21st century is not going to be the century of robotics or AI or or genetics. Those will all be very important. I think it's going to actually be the century of social science. And um, if we get the social science right, then we're going to make it through and we'll thrive and we'll be much better off at the end of the century. And if we get the social science wrong and we have increasing inequality and increasing uh, uh, hostility and decreasing trust, I think we will see some countries break apart. I think we will see some terrible, terrible things happening. So, yes, I would urge that all across our countries, everybody learned one semester of uh, microeconomics, one semester of statistics, and one semester of either social psychology or sociology, That is, we need citizens who can understand just how difficult it is to create a large secular liberal democracy. The odds are, in a way, stacked against us, and the founding fathers of my country knew that. They knew how hard the task was that they were undertaking.
2: We need to educate as if it was precious and fragile, which it is. Well, Jonathan, I knew I'd enjoy this uh, conversation, but I didn't know it would end up affirming me as a sociologist (laughs) with the belief that it that what will save the world is social science what a fantastic thought to take away thank you so much for your time my pleasure matthew Jonathan Haidt's new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is out now. And if you want to hear more from him, you can head to the RSA's YouTube channel to see his talk, which is called Why a Twenty-First Century Enlightenment Needs Walls. Now, Ian, what did what did you make of my conversation with Jonathan Haidt?
1: I actually preferred listening to him talk than than I did reading his book, to be honest. Uh, I I do think he's a genuinely kind of interesting and thoughtful Guy with, with a lot to say about, about our politics and, and our psychology and all sorts of things. The book I found a little bit, maybe too focused on the present moment. I, I like a book to kind of take a step back from what's going on. His book is very much focused on what's been happening in the last few years. Um, and, and it's very US focused. Um, and again, to come back to this point, a lot of the stuff that he talks about is not you can't really read across to the UK. And actually, even some of the things that he talks about in, in the US... The importance he attaches to them seems to be out of proportion to to that what, what's actually going on. So there's a a, a chapter and, and a lot of talk about the no platforming phenomenon on, on on U.S. campuses. And then what you have to ask, you know, how big is it? I know it's you know it's it's a it's a problem, but. Uh, and it's unwelcome, but but how much of this is actually going on? Um, the one piece of evidence that he cites in his book, he says, we've been tracking no platforming events since since two thousand, and it's been increasing steeply. Um, and now we're now up to a total of three hundred and seventy nine uh, incidents of, of no platforming. And I don't know; it just makes me think. How many events have there been on on cat? Was it three, seven, nine? Doesn't seem like very much, you know. Uh, out of how many? It's probably a tiny proportion, and it's probably a little bit in the in the UK as well, which then gets leapt upon by by certain Tory ministers or, or certain parts of the, the Tory press, and people say, "Ah, oh, the universities have lost the kind of sense of, of free speech, and um, everyone's scared about what." They're... And I, I just think a lot of this stuff is is wildly blown out of proportion. So, so can
2: I, I, I I I want to bring together uh, two things we 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 talked about in and and link them to a book that I've just read, which has had a bigger impact on me. So, uh, the book is called Twilight of the Elites, uh, Christoph uh, Guillet. I can't suggest that you get it yet because I've been reading a proof, uh, the English um, proof copy, but I guess it's going to be in bookshop sooner if you can read French, then you can read it because it's had a big impact on France. And the reason uh, I think what uh, Christophe argues is relevant to our conversation is that there is something which is in common between America and France and Britain. And it's the one thing we don't want to talk about as liberals. The one thing we we want to talk about precisely as you say, we want to talk about no platforming. Uh, We want to talk about kind of polarization. We want to talk about populism. What we don't want to talk about, he says, is the fact that globalisation has been a disaster for the working classes and that the issue is not really about the top 0.1%, which we would love to talk about. But it's actually about the middle classes. It's probably about the top 30, 35%, the people who live in cities who have benefited from globalisation, who want to have all sorts of conversations about all sorts of things and consider themselves to be very radical and very liberal. But the one thing they don't really want to talk about is the fact that the modern world works for them and it doesn't work for an awful lot of other people. And those people also tend to be concentrated in the peripheries of these countries and and that the conflict is increasingly between the kind of what um, Christoph controversially calls the Bobos, uh, which is um, the bohemian bourgeoisie, and the peripheral parts of the country who feel that that things are pretty rotten for them. What do you think of that? Uh, That that does make
1: sense. Um, Globalisation you know, one way of thinking about it is that it's effectively been a redistribution of wealth from the the sort of working classes of the Western world to the poor of the developing world.
2: Which the liberal middle classes seem to have kind of, or the middle classes seem to have, urban middle classes anyway, have seem to have kind of avoided the pain of globalization. Of course, what's particularly poignant about reading this book by Christophe Aguirre is he predicts, I don't know exactly when he wrote this book, but he predicts the Gilets Jaunes, the, the Yellow Vests, now rioting in Paris. By the time you hear this, I don't know where that will, have, whether, what state France would have gone into. He absolutely predicts this coalition between a kind of uh, a whole set of people who are politically alienated and a particular group. Those people living in the periphery. And of course, the, the reason the issue in France has been so. Uh, angered people is it's about petrol prices because the people who live in the rural areas say, you know, we, without petrol, we can't get around. It's all right for you living in the centre of Paris and you've got your metro and you walk around your bohemian areas. Right. So he predicts this. And I, I think this is something we kind of we, we need to... And it reminded me a little bit also of an argument that Richard Reeves made, I think, a couple of years ago from the Brookings Institute, when he said, look, if you want to look at educational inequality, forget the top 1%. It's about the hoarding of opportunities by the top 35%. That's the people who you know, guarantee good university places for their kid who use tuition. So the thing we don't really want to talk about is the way the middle classes benefit from globalization, a hoarding opportunity, and that that's exactly. the polarization. Every other yeah. polarization we want to talk about, except the one that might actually mean we have to give up something ourselves. Quite,
1: and, and that, 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 the education divide is is one thing that we do share with you. You can make a read across. I mean, in the, in the US, it's more extreme. Like everything in the US is more extreme, but it's a, the biggest predictor. Of the the Brexit vote here, so there are absolutely there are there are some structural similarities between France and the US
2: and the UK that 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 we can't look away from. So all this is is kind of slightly depressing, and I and, and, and what's happening in France is worrying. And you know we've managed to go this far without mentioning the uh, the word beginning with B. But let's stick to that to the end <laughs> of the program. But let's try and end on a slightly more positive or at least kind of slightly more lighthearted note which is an article published in the journal of applied research in memory and cognition which uh, it was called we made history citizens of 35 countries overestimate their nation's role in world history so anyway people were asked in all sort, in countries all around the 35 countries to estimate from naught to 100% what contribution their com- the country has made to world history uh, and so I was just fascinated by this so the country with the three highest estimates in terms of the contribution they think their country made to world so history were Russia, the UK and uh, India. The countries of the three lowest estimates, New Zealand, Norway and Switzerland. Y- y- you're kind of tempted here to say that there is a relationship, in between the dysfunctionality of a country's politics and the degree to which its population is self-regarding in relation to its historical role.
1: I can see that. Um, on the other hand... You know, to, to a certain extent, this is human nature. I mean, this rem- reminds me of all those studies that show that most of us as individuals walk around in a little bubble of, of self-deception about our own Qualities, right? So, so most people think they are a little nicer th- than they really are, a, a little more competent, a little more intelligent than they really are. You know, so, it's, so when they're when they're tested against averages, they always put themselves above the. So everyone thinks they're above above average, and you see this now sort of reproduced at, at the national scale. Now, as individuals, a little degree of self deception is necessary to be happy, right? The people who are who have no illusions about themselves tend to be uh, mildly depressed. So at a national level it might be good that countries
2: overestimate their own their Yeah importance. but I think there's a matter of degree isn't there because you know these countries at the bottom New Zealand so the people in New Zealand think that the contribution they've made to world history is 18% on a naught hundred. Now that's probably exaggerated wildly it's exaggerated wildly exaggerated I'm um, uh, you know apart from going kind of rugby and and lamb and and, <laughs> and you know some cultural figures don't get me wrong You know, it's hard to imagine that's New Zealand's proportion. But the problem is this. The the way this survey works, if everybody was accurate about the contribution their country had made, the total would add up to 100%. Actually, the total adds up to 1,156%. Now, what that suggests to me is that (laughs) in as much as politicians, part of what politicians ought to do is to sometimes confront us with difficult truths. Any politician who wanted to say to their population, you know, maybe we're not quite as special as we think we are. Maybe we need to kind of get used to the fact that that the world doesn't revolve around us. They're on a, a they're 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 on a hiding to nothing. Aren't they, they are, guys? but you
1: know, so the countries that lost the Second World War, are, you know, are countries that have come out the other side with some sense of humility, I think, and. uh well we're not going to mention the b word, but I think part part, part of our problem is that uh, we we never lost, we never got invaded. um so we we think we're pretty much invincible
2: well, uh, I, it's getting harder and harder to avoid that word. so we just need to finish now so that mm-hmm. we can we can say if we Quickly. want to we did a half an hour conversation and we didn't want to mention the dreaded word. anyway, so that's it for polarized. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with a fantastic guest. we're we'll be talking about identity politics one of the world's most well-known political scientists. I noticed actually in the interview with Jonathan Haidt that he referred to Stephen Pinker as Steve Pinker. So I'm tempted to say we'll be talking to Frankie Fukuyama, but I won't be saying that when we talk to him. We'll be talking to Francis Fukuyama. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review in your podcast app. It really does help other people discover the podcast. Polarized was presented by Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor. The producer was James Shield and we were brought to you by the RSA.